I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and Me Too, to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This is an idea travelogue. It lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. With women that came out against him and said, I was in an underage relationship with him. He did this to me. He did that. What did I, I just didn't believe them, the woman. I know it sounds ridiculous. The way they dress, the way they act, I didn't like them. I voted again. Uh, I disregarded all what they said. That was juror John Patreon, who in 2008 voted along with other jurors to acquit R. Kelly of all charges. These were the charges that pertain to pornographic abuse of a young girl. Last month, some 11 years after that acquittal, R. Kelly was arrested once more. This time the charges are aggravated criminal sexual abuse. And now the Pied Piper is in the news yet again. This after a shocking and explosive rant during an interview with Gail King. Now, Kelly has denied all charges and, of course, claims that he himself is a victim. I need somebody to help me not have a big heart because my heart is so big. People betray me and I keep forgiving them. Watching Kelly's indignant declaration that these are simply conspiracies to bring him down, I couldn't help but think about the gender differences in the ways that men and women are allowed to speak about victimization. My thoughts trailed back to that juror. The idea that because Patreon didn't like the way black women dressed, didn't like the way they acted, didn't like who they were, the idea that he could vote in favor of acquitting R. Kelly was just infuriating to me. To hear it spoken so plainly without any apology, without a sense that it needs to be repackaged was just jaw-dropping for me. It was the very embodiment of the intersection of racism and sexism, or what Moya Bailey calls misogynoir. I wish I could say that I was shocked by the revelation, but in fact, I've encountered this sensibility many times. I think we all saw it during Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings, when the Senate Judiciary Committee effectively disregarded everything Anita Hill had to say. I also saw it when I was writing an article entitled Mapping the Margins, when I learned that black women are least likely to be believed when reporting sexual abuse. They're least likely to see their perpetrators arrested, least likely to see them charged, least likely to see them tried, and least likely to see them convicted. And then on the very rare occasion when their claims actually do catalyze convictions, black women remain the least likely to see their perpetrators do significant time. I learned about jurors in open and shut cases in which perpetrators were acquitted when jurors said things like, a black girl from that neighborhood probably wasn't a virgin anyway. 
because of who black females are thought to be. Essentially, there was a rule of no harm, no foul. This, in fact, is a historical dimension of black women's sexual abuse. In some states, historically, rape claims were dismissed for failure to state that the victim was white. In other words, being a black woman many times made a woman or a girl unrapeable. So when I heard this juror cavalierly dismissed the testimony of black women over a hundred years after the end of slavery, over 50 years after the end of segregation, over 20 years after Anita Hill. When we heard a juror say that he just didn't like black women, he just doesn't trust black girls, it made me want to holler. I wanted to do something, demand something, break something. The good news is that I know my outrage is shared, not only by black women who have been rising up against this assault on our sexual autonomy, but now by millions who have been mobilized by activists to begin a long and necessary process of changing the narrative about black women and sexual abuse. Now, at least in Chicago, there's a new sheriff in town, State Attorney Kim Fox, an African-American woman and survivor. The privilege to abuse in plain sight may now finally, because of Kim Fox and the work of so many others, carry some penalties. And this might be one of the reasons behind the meltdown that we all saw on television a few nights ago. Now, there are a few people who have to be given a shout out for making this all possible, including, of course, the courageous women who have shared their stories. But also, we have to give a shout out to Jim DeRogotis, who has been lifting up their stories for years when virtually no one wanted to hear about them. Also, Dream Hampton, who brought these stories to life. And finally, Kenyette Barnes and Orenike Odalei, co-founders of the Mute R. Kelly campaign. So I was on the road when the most recent chapter in the Kelly saga was unfolding. And I sent out a Hail Mary to Kenyette Barnes. When she replied and said she was available to talk to us, we quickly converted a cavernous room into a makeshift studio, and we were off and running. In our wide-ranging conversation, Kenyette explained that her very first act of protest against Kelly was all the way back in 2002. She was a student at Temple University, and she said she saw a man selling bootleg copies of the tape, the same tape that Kelly would eventually be tried on in 2008. In 2002, I was a graduate student at Temple University, and that's when the um, the original tape came out. And I remember I was on the train, and there was a dude selling the bootleg copies of the VHS, like right out under the train. And I rode that train maybe three days, and the third day I hopped off, I walked across the street, and I knocked the tapes all off his table. Got back up on the train, had to use another token because I was going the same direction. I'll never forget that. But I was done. You know, when I got on the train, I was like, oh, my God, this man could have hit me. I could have been arrested. I could anything could have happened. But it was the rage. It was that unmitigated rage. 
R. Kelly is battling to save his name. Police are investigating a video allegedly showing the R&B singer having sex with a 14-year-old girl. They watched it because it was a girl. Because it was a girl. So that, to me, lets me know when I hear these guys that are now my contemporaries, you know, in their 40s and 50s that are like, well, let's not be so hasty. I'm like, brother, shut up. You are probably the one sitting up there watching that tape, so be quiet. Unfortunately, the primary um, oppression to our girls is sexual. And sexual oppression is generally intraracial. And by, by discussing that, we are, in, we are indeed turning the lens on our black men. You know, we're going to have to unpack all that. We got to unpack it. As simple as that. I, you know, I thought about you when I read that Kim Fox had issued the arrest warrant for Robert Kelly. And I just thought, I need to get on the phone <laughs> as, soon as, <laughs> as soon as possible. So where were you when you heard the news? Tell right. us a little bit about your reaction. When I heard the news, I was actually traveling. And um, my notifications just went haywire. And I'm like, what is going on? They just they just started wilding out. I was like, okay, let me log on. And that's when I found out about the, um, the indictment, the, the grand jury indictment. When that tape came out, it, the, the first response of the black community was to bootleg it and sell it and watch it. And there was, although there were those of us who were on the ground just outraged about it, um, we didn't have the groundswell of activism at, on a large scale, on a crossover scale as we do now. And I think what has happened with a combination of Tarana Burke's work and Dream Hampton's uh, work with Surviving R. Kelly, and I will also say Mute R. Kelly, is that we've watched a seismic shift in how people begin to talk about this. But even in that space, you still have detractors, and I guess we could talk about that too, but getting back to the, the timeline, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for a DA to not take this seriously in this climate. You mentioned the sisters come into court with him. Um, yes, they did. But did you notice that there were numerous people watching them? So, yes, they were there, but they were also there under watch. So when we're seeing that snapshot, there's a whole lot that we're not seeing. And I just think that we need to s stop relying on the fact that because some of the things that I heard sis was oh those red bottoms were real cute red bottoms these girls are being abused Jesus in the middle of that so so and when people are saying that what do you think they are actually saying when they talk about the red bottoms are really cute well it for me it really speaks to the economic uh, state of black women and that you know for many of us we're working two and three jobs we're hustling taking care of kids sometimes 
And we're living below the margins almost in most cases. So things like expensive shoes and handbags and trips are kind of beyond our reach. And when we see other women who've obtained those from a partner or partner-like person, we see something we don't have. So therefore, if they do have it, they're doing okay. And I believe we have this connection that materialism equals love. And, and, and that's another narrative that we need to start to deconstruct because um, there are many, many women who are victims of abuse and have a horrible abusive episode and then are taken on a trip to mm-hmm. Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Right. Part, usually part of the makeup, right? Yeah, it's the cycle, the cycle of, abuse. of abuse. You have that honeymoon stage where you have the escalation and then the actual action and then the honeymoon stage. And within that stage, that's usually where you're getting all these gifts. And then from the outside perspective in, what people see is you're being well taken care of. You're getting stuff. You are, you know, you appear to mm-hmm. be well cared for. So what are you complaining about? Absolutely. I think it really speaks to uh, the intersectionality, <laughs> to use your term, um, of not only economic instability within black women, but this need for companionship. And when when you see someone who appears to have both she has everything. Why is she complaining? Anita Hill, a University of Oklahoma law professor, worked for Clarence Thomas during the early 1980s. She appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee. I was on her legal team. And, you know, what was most shocking and hurtful was what people in the African-American community had to say about a black woman stepping forward. Even if it did happen, you should sit your butt down and, you know, not say anything about it because you're being a traitor to the community. You're bringing a brother down. You know, I call it the save a brother school of thought. You gotta Um, save the brothers. And so a lot of this is out of that same playbook. (laughs) So I'm wondering what part of the save a brother playbook (laughs) did you all encounter when you first started Mute R. Kelly? Wow, okay, so the save a brother playbook, uh, we encountered the most benign being maybe a comment on a social media post, uh, why are you bringing down a black man? to the most violent threats. You know, if I ever see you, I'm going to F you up because you're trying to just destroy the black community. This is what white supremacy wants us to do. So it's this idea that any attempt to hold accountable wrongdoings in the black community is an extension of white supremacy, which is a logical fallacy. Topics of misogynoir, um, toxic masculinity, whenever those conversations come up in this space, it's usually met with a lot of vitriol. We've had um, fan groups of R. Kelly come into our public space where we're talking about issues of... um, sexual violence in the black community and just troll the page and post pictures of R. Kelly and, 
you know, make sort of a play on our hashtag instead of mute R. Kelly. It's play R. Kelly. And and, and, and can you just to be clear, are these all men? No, actually, most of them are black women. So so that to me was the most surprising and heart wrenching of this uh, campaign. And I believe we are probably the first campaign to receive that degree of backlash other than Anita Hill. Because I remember Anita Hill, a lot of the backlash was coming from black women as well. So, Well, and, and just to be concrete about it, which was one of the reasons I was curious about whether you were seeing the same thing in the backlash, mm-hmm. when we were in the Capitol and came out, Uh, After the first day of hearing, we saw all of these black women and we thought they had come to support Anita. And when we got close to them, we found not only were they not there to support Anita, (laughs) they were praying to God for him to intervene on behalf of Clarence Thomas. So um, she was being framed as a Jezebel, a harlot, um, someone who was sent you know, by the dark side to bring down, you know, a good brother. And it was Mm -hmm. just, you know, first of all, just heartbreaking, heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Um, Knowing that, that, you know, if the statistics are right, a significant number of those people who were standing there supporting Clarence Thomas had already been abused. What what is your thought about um, why there's so little intragender, intraracial solidarity, at least historically on this issue, and and what needs to be done about that? Many of us were taught that we caused our abuse. And intuitively, we knew that we didn't. But in order to kind of not go crazy, in order to kind of survive in a space where we're consistently seeing our abuser, who in some cases might be responsible for our basic needs. We had to create a narrative, believe a narrative. And so now that we're adults and we're seeing advocacy for girls and young women who had the same thing happen to them as we did, I think it creates this cognitive dissonance that many of us just cannot reconcile. It's easier to lash out at my, my co-founder, Ornike, and I for daring to talk about this than to admit that we might be sitting across the table from our sexual abuser every year at Thanksgiving dinner. We might be going to pray at a church where our sexual abuser is the deacon or the pastor. I was wondering how you thought about this. Uh, You know, part of the long-term dimension of this story is that people knew, 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 knew that this was happening, but yet it wasn't until we as a public saw women together, one after another, after another, after another, Mm -hmm. telling the story. I mean, most of the stories were not new. But somehow in exactly. the aggregate, it caused something to happen that hadn't happened before. <laughs> and I'm wondering yeah. what, what you think was going on before when it was just story after story after story. How, how come it didn't aggregate into a, 
well, this man is a predator. Mm-hmm. Why didn't it happen then, and why does it happen? Well, I think uh, there's two reasons. One, um, we are we've developed narratives against it. So one of the narratives is the idea of the fast girl. So a lot of that comes into play when we come up and we are comfortable with these narratives. And one of the narratives is she knew better. Uh, Why was she in that man's face? Well, these girls are fast and they're hot and they they lie about their age and they only want money. And, you know, we're too comfortable with narratives that allow for the sexual brutality of black girls that we would never be comfortable with in any other situation. When Larry Nasser abused those girls, immediately people saw those as girls who were preyed upon and abused. When R. Kelly abused these girls, it was, well, why was she there? Well, why did she lie about her age? Well, well, these girls want money and these girls are hot. And it's like, stop. First of all, no 14-year-old girl, despite how precocious she is, and I'm speaking as someone who was a precocious child, for some reason, I always found myself intersecting with men who did not have good intentions for me. And despite the fact that I was smart and precocious, it doesn't equal mature. And that's something we have to really be clear about. And... One of the things, one of the narratives that happens a lot is that we place more responsibility on not being preyed upon, groomed and raped on 14-year-old girls than we do on grown men. And it really goes back to that save a brother thing. So we got the save a brother and then we got the adultification thing. So that's one reason. And the other thing, and... um. This is also an extension of adultification is how the larger society views black girls. And one of the things that happened in this trial that for me was enraging is that the media consistently viewed these, reported these as sex tapes. And I almost, well, I did, and I I made it clear, I refuse to give any more interviews until you stop using the term sex tape. Because what happens in that space is that we're not viewing this as what it is, and it's rape. It, it's, it's sexual abuse. It's not a sex tape. A sex tape denotes consenting partners, most of the time adults, who consent to not only the act, but also the recording and the, dis- and the, and the control of the distribution. So none of that happened in 2002 and none of that happened now. And when the media started reporting this as a sex tape, I was enraged. So that was number one. The second thing, when you saw attorneys who purported to be advocates for these girls speaking about their sexual degradation in the most salacious and explicit terms, that to me hit a visceral nerve. Yeah. So, so just for the listeners, what, what are you referring to? What kind of ways were the lawyers actually participating in the degradation of the girls? Well, um, 
most 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 notably, it's uh, the defense attorney for R. Kelly, Stephen Greenberg, and unfortunately, the purported advocate for some of the uh, survivors, Michael Avenatti. And in both of their conversations about this, it was almost reduced as these were consensual acts by the defense attorney. And then by Mr. Avenatti, it was it was viewed as a sex tape. And he was consistently tweeting about the salacious details of the tapes. And, you know, I, you know, as the co-founder of Muter Kelly, I had to say something. And I did. And my my retort and my ask was stop using the term sex tapes. And we have to be careful how we're discussing this in the public space. And we cannot both position ourselves as advocates and then around the hand slap down these girls and use their sex, their sexual degradation and then show up as benevolent superheroes. We can't do that. Yes. This is not the, and you know, I think in, in, in packed into that is also a dimension of white supremacy Mm -hmm. by, by, by that. I mean, if this, if these were tapes showing the abuse of white, you wouldn't hear that. You wouldn't hear that language. Not at all. I I think it's a, a, a sad and frustrating example of what happens when people come into this uh, issue with yes. only part of an analysis, right? Exactly. So they're, they're coming in to say, okay, we need to intervene. We've got evidence that, you know, R. Kelly did these things, but they're, they also are holding up a certain aspect of white supremacy that Absolutely. does not allow um, for the ability to see and articulate uh, black girls and women as subject to abuse and that their abuse counts, right? So this is, you, you need to have both a critique of white supremacy as well as a critique of patriarchy. many layers that that you've been unpacking here the the layer of black women and girls first uh being abused Mm -hmm. the second layer of people you know stereotyping them and not seeing the abuse because of the adultification of of black girls and stereotypes about uh, the sexual autonomy of black women Mm -hmm. and then people stepping in thinking okay i'm just going to you know lift you up i don't have to make myself subject to your uh, critique of how I might be talking about you in a stereotypical way. So it's like all this stuff going on. And let's just, you know, (laughs) add a few more layers to it. Girl, we got more. Feminist friends aren't always there. You know, they kind of um, absent themselves. It's like, oh, it's a black thing. Oh, yeah. um, Our typical... presence in issues having to be having to do with sexual abuse we're going to step back and sometimes our brothers aren't there of course because you know um our group victimization is weaponized to allow abuse to continue exactly so there's all there's a <laughs> thicket going on, oh right? yeah and it's almost a miracle that you all have come to this yeah. point to at least have some reckoning and i'm i'm wondering since now you do have um, an important platform about what are some quick things that 
Um, people need to understand in order to move from this moment to a wider mm-hmm. capacity to be able to see and intervene in the victimization of black women and girls. So um, as the expert, I'm going to ask you like okay. three quick things. So number one, you, you've talked a few times about yes. grooming and uh, what mm-hmm. that looks like. And I think it would be useful for us to be able to say to women, girls, and parents, you give the talk to the men, mm-hmm. the talk, um, about things that might happen to mm-hmm. our sons and our brothers. What's mm-hmm. the talk that has to be given to black girls? I would say not every older man or older boy who wants to buy you things has your best interest. Yes, it's nice to get your nails done. It's nice to get your hair done. It's nice to get nice handbags. But sometimes this is the precursor to them doing really bad things to you. When I reflect back on 18-year-old Kenyette, when those older men were coming to me, when those older men were telling me how mature I was and how this I was, that was coercion. That's what grooming looked like. So definitely, if you're 15, 16 years old and you have a 25, 35 plus year old man approaching you with gifts and be totally aware that for the most part, that's a grooming, um, that, that that's grooming behavior. And any man that tells you to not trust your parents, not trust your, your family members, not trust your friends, especially if those other relationships are not abusive, then that is truly a red flag for grooming. Yes, right. And we've been talking largely about girls, but that might give the impression that women um, are also not vulnerable. And it makes me think that the strategy that R. Kelly is apparently pursuing, which is bringing the two young women that he's now with to court to demonstrate, look, this is choice, this is free agency, um, uh, and, 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 and effectively saying, you know, they are t- trying to prosecute us for having sex. I mean, that was what was in his song, right? You know, they're just... So what do people need to understand? Well, well, one, uh, that strategy was something that the defense attorney is consistently trying to say is that these are all consensual sexual relationships and that he just likes young women. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. Whenever I hear people say, well, you know, these are adults, they know better. Um, Sis, there are 40-year-old women who get (laughs) coerced and hustled and abused every day. So there isn't an age limit on being manipulated because it has nothing to do with maturity of the victim. It has everything to do with the lack of uh, the the antisocial tendencies of the abuser. And as I've said often, if you have not experienced grooming or coercion or abuse, you just weren't targeted. So consider yourself lucky, learn, and have a seat. And, uh, and that's real. And so um, what I would say is that, yes, we put a lot of focus on the girls. However, you can be 19, 20, 25 years old and older and face this level of abuse and victimization. And I think we need to recognize that it has little to do with the victim and more to do with the lack 
of empathy and the heightened degree of sociopathy of the abuser. And um, we have to begin to change that conversation a little bit. There are indeed monsters among us. Sorry. (laughs) Yes. You said earlier that, you know, our Kelly uh, campaign is something that has now gone national and international, but you've been an activist for a long time. And I, I think um, it one of the things that we want to expose our audience to is the pathway to activism. So what led you to want to do this work? When did you um, make a transition to uh, actually thinking, okay, I, I need to say something. I need to do something. <laughs> what led you to be wow. this intersectional activist? Girl, um, actually living 40 plus years as a black woman. I think that probably mm. did it the most. But um, <laughs> I think for me, it really just started with seeing these little minute issues within the black community that always were something I didn't understand. I mean, even as a young girl, I remember the conversations about race and how we had to stand up against racial inequality and white supremacy. But then I would often see these same men abusing their wives or, you know, being accused of, you know, child molestation. And, um, you know, and, and then I would hear about, you know, especially, you know, some of the Panthers and some of the older um, civil rights guys, you know, you know, some of the horrible things that they did to to women and also the marginalization of women within those spaces. Um, so that was just something that was always odd for me. And, that, and this is me as a little girl, just kind of seeing and hearing these narratives. And um, first time I heard about Eldridge Cleaver, I might have been 10 or 11. And it was just really odd for me that, well, this guy said he was really about the liberation of black people, but then he was raping and sexually abusing black women and girls. And I just didn't understand it. And also, um, I'd heard a lot about white supremacy and how you have to be you know, untrusting of white people. But then like many black people, I lived in a community, although it was pretty integrated, um, it was mostly black. And all of the kind of oppressive things that I experienced so that my friends experience as black women tended to come from other black people. And I'm like, well, if we are afraid or we are concerned about white people, why is it that my friends are being molested and raped and beaten by black men? And is that okay? And at one point, I'll be honest, I just accepted that's just part of being a black woman. Mm. And that was the hardest thing for me to accept that this is just what it's about. You just, this is the legacy of, of enslavement that we now have to just except that our black men are so beaten down that we can't really hold them accountable because we're just another person that's beating them down. And what broke you out of that? Because I think many people will hear that and their heads will be nodding. What talked so to me, uh, something pushed you away from yes, that. What was it? It was my own abuse. And um, mm. one of the reasons why I kind of am in this space with R. Kelly now, 
I was a model when I was a teenager, so I did some catalog work and um, some runway work, but mostly catalog work and, and photography. And it was when I was exploited by a child pornographer. And it happened in such a way that, you know, I talk about grooming and coercion. I walked into a space that I had walked into several times before with a photographer. And something changed and something happened within the midst of that photo shoot. And it went from photos for a portfolio to explicit photos of me that when I got the proofs back, I never saw. So there are like 50 plus pictures that I have never seen, but I knew that they were taken of me. And then later, as I began to kind of unpack all of that, I realized that there were these huge uh, child pornography underground rings of pedophiles that would share pictures. Now, this is back in the 80s. So this Mm -hmm. happened in 88, 87 or 88. And how old were you at the time? 17. And so uh, one would say, well, guess what? You were old enough to know better. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. And my 40 plus year old self would walk into a space like that and would know when the shift happened and would immediately stop and end. My 17 year old self didn't. And that's that's the grooming, the coercion, the lack of agency part that we don't talk about. And um, and so for me, I think that was kind of where well, one, I stopped modeling. I just stopped and um, never really talked about why I did. But that was the reason why I did. And even to this day, I'm very uncomfortable with people taking pictures of me without my knowledge or I need to see all of the pictures. I recently did a photo shoot for new headshots and I had this conversation with the photographer, beautiful brother in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Quadir Thomas. He was very professional, very understanding. But before the shoot started, we had to have that conversation. And we're talking 30 years later, we're having this conversation. And he was like, I didn't know. And I'm sorry. And he said, well, here's what we're going to do. Anything you're uncomfortable about, you tell me. And the shoot was very well done, but it, it, it's those, it was that experience that for me really started to shape that, wait a minute. And ironically, I remember the studio in East Cleveland, Ohio, he had like Malcolm X pictures on his wall and <laughs> the picture of like Malcolm and Martin. And it's like, wait a minute. It was Malcolm Martin and Elijah Muhammad. I remember that picture. And I'm like, wait a minute. We're sitting up here with civil rights icons, and you do this to me. People need to know that you're more likely to be abused by people who you're comfortable with, who you're close to, who use cultural cues to make you, um, you know, feel at ease. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Thank you to Ornike and thank you on, on behalf of all of us for taking this time to join us on Intersectionality Matters. You're welcome and thank you for inviting me. It was my pleasure.
Here's an update on our previous guest, activist Rhonda Dormius, and the outcome of the civil suit on behalf of her daughter, Corinne Gaines. If you haven't already checked out our previous episode, Corinne was a 23-year-old black woman shot to death by police officer Royce Ruby Jr. in August of 2016. Last year, a Baltimore jury concluded that Officer Ruby violated Gaines' civil rights. As a consequence, they awarded more than $34 million to Corinne's son, daughter, mother, and father. Yet the Gaines family has not yet conducted a dime of these funds. Last month, Judge Mickey Norman overturned the jury's decision. It means that unless his ruling is successfully appealed, Corinne's family won't be compensated at all for her senseless death. Now, the state is essentially telling the family that Corinne's life was worth nothing, that the damage to her children's life isn't worth anything. Judge Norman has effectively imposed his own reading of the case and has discarded the jury's take by ruling that Officer Ruby did not violate any constitutional or statutory obligations towards Corinne. Rhonda's lawyer, J. Wendell Gordon, intends to appeal. Intersectionality Matters will continue to monitor the developments in this case, as well as periodically check in with all of the mothers of the Say Her Name movement. If you like what you heard today, we're hosting a discussion on Black women and the Me Too movement on Tuesday, March 26th at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. The event is part of our fifth annual Her Dream Deferred Week. It's a series of activities that focuses on elevating the crises facing Black women and girls. We'll also be including an original play on the Say Her Name movement. You can find more information on the series at aapf.org. If you're not in L.A., you can tune into our virtual event on Friday, and you can also watch live streams of the other events throughout the week. Stay tuned for more details. Intersectionality Matters is recorded and produced by Julia Sharp-Levine. Editing by Julia Sharp-Levine and Rebecca Sheckman. Additional support by Naima Hakim, Jira Asim, Kevin Minofu, Michael Kramer, and Madeline Cameron Walderworth. Special thanks to Robert Jemison for recording today's episode and to Kenyette Barnes for allowing us to interview her. Keep listening and support us on our Patreon page for bonus content from all of our interviews. You can find us at Intersectionality Matters on social media at aapf.org and everywhere podcasts are available. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.